means keeping people either keeping them away or keeping them a little bit behind. But let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. We'll distribute our quiz and then perhaps a few others will, will wander in. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us and for your goodness. We ask that you to strengthen our minds tonight uh, as, uh, as, we, as we study. May we, may we learn much of you. Uh, not just merely to fill our heads with information, but so that we might know and love you more, serve you better. And Lord, I ask you to give us safety as we as we travel away from this place too, with the with the uh, poor weather. In your name, we pray. Amen. Okay, most of you are done writing, so let's go ahead and look at these quizzes and see what we uh, come up with. True or false? The blasphemy of the spirit can occur today. False. False. Why not? I forgot all the reasons. You're the first one to answer. You know what happens. <laughs> Jesus isn't here in the flesh. Right. And so the blasphemy of the Spirit seems to be particularly tied to his uh, his uh, attesting Jesus' messiahship through miracles. And since Jesus is no longer here and his messiahship has been attested, uh, this 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 blasphemy of the spirit cannot occur. It doesn't mean we can't grieve the Holy Spirit, certainly, uh, but this unpardonable uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit seems to be limited uh, to uh, the the era where Jesus uh, walked the earth. Okay, number two, the Holy Spirit dictated the scriptures to holy men who wrote them down without inserting any thoughts of their own. False. What's false about it? It's supposed to be the thoughts of God, but they could put their own style in. Okay, they could put their own stylistic elements, but no, no, no content. Yeah. Right? So they didn't add their own thoughts. But the thing that was actually false about it was what? Dictates. Dictates, right? You know, I put all that extra. That all that extra stuff was just to confuse you, right? It, it wasn't dictated by the Holy Spirit. Occasionally, there are there are bits and pieces of the, of the Old Testament, for instance, that were dictated, but they're exceptional, uh, and in fact, they're notable because of their exceptional nature. Uh, so, normally, uh, this was done in some sort of a what the what we call a confluence, some sort of a of a confluence where whereby the Holy Spirit uh, produced his produced the material. There was, as uh, Peter says, it was not their own origin, their own interpretations that were inter- in, inserted there, but rather holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Define regeneration. God terminates the, re- the resistance a person has toward him and imparts a new nature. Very good. So two aspects. To the definition, the the end of the crippling power of sin, and the means whereby that occurs is the impartation of the new nature. And those two things are sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, the first we sometimes call definitive sanctification, the the end of the power of sin. Uh, but I think both of them really work together as part of this regeneration act. Okay. Number four, then, true-false, while regeneration may have occurred in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints knew nothing about it. No, they don't know as we know it. Okay. But they they did have it because it was observed through their works and 
changes okay. in your so they did have it but they didn't know it as regeneration did they that's the question that's not the like question. we know it i don't think well we got remember nicodemus in john chapter three he being the teacher of israel should have understood jesus says what it means to be born again so it does appear that they were aware of the concept of regeneration. And furthermore, I think they would have recognized there had to be something to overcome the power of sin. And, uh, that, I mean, they, they were quite aware of depravity. You know, they, they, they had the, they had the plenty of scripture texts to, to, to know that, that, uh, uh the, you know, uh, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we can't please God. So, I, I'm inclined to think that this would be um, false because Old Testament saints did know about it. They understood depravity. They understood it had to be overcome. And Nicodemus was told by Christ uh, that he should have understood uh, regeneration, implying then that there was enough data there for him to 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 know about uh, the concept of regeneration. <laughs> the problem okay? is that that word "new" is very tricky. New. <laughs> I'm just learning that seminary professor questions. Yeah. I learned from the best. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said I'm just learning that I need to mark everything false because I need to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that, that usually is true, but but then I always follow up with a why, so uh, you have to you have to be ready for that too. <laughs> okay, any other questions from what we covered last week or? on the quiz here okay well, let's pick up then in our notes on page 38 we're talking about the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit tonight so we're moving towards this idea of his work in believers to sanctify us indwelling is the ongoing articulation of the Holy Spirit in the interest of, really of our sanctification with our minds and lives of all those who are truly regenerate. Now, let me see if we can't unfold this a little bit. Uh, because the word indwelling sort of gives us the sense that, you know, the Holy Spirit was outside and then he comes to dwell inside, it could give sort of a, a locative understanding to this idea that the Holy Spirit uh, wasn't in us and now he is. Of course, that's really impossible. We've already talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God, including omnipresence. So he's everywhere present. I think we said last week he's every bit as much in this lectern as he is in you and me. Uh, he's in your pagan neighbor as much as he is in you in terms of location because God is everywhere. Everywhere there is a where, right? God is there. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is everywhere present. And so we can't define this term strictly in terms of location. Uh, so how do we, how do we get around this? Uh, so as God can be more manifest in one place than another, so also the Holy Spirit is more manifest in the believer than he is in the unbeliever. Uh, for instance, when we pray to God, the Lord's Prayer, how do we begin? Our Father, who are in heaven. Oh, wait a minute. Why did we say that? Why, why didn't we say, you know, our father who is inside the battery compartment of this microphone? Because he's there too, right? So the reason we say our father who art in heaven is because he manifests himself 
more dramatically in heaven, as is illustrated by the fact that perhaps Isaiah, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up and glory filling the temple, or or, or the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, uh, we see occasional glimpses into the dwelling place of God, that place where he most visibly manifests himself uh, for those who happen to be around. So it's not as though he's not everywhere else, but he manifests himself more visibly. And so I think we've got the same thing when we're talking about indwelling. It's not as though he is not in some people and is in others, but he manifests himself in believers in a way that he doesn't in unbelievers. Okay, so that's why we can talk about it being unique uh, to Christians. So the Holy Spirit is more manifest in our lives than in the lives of unbelievers. So indwelling, then, is the manifestation of the Spirit's influence in the lives of believers. Okay, so it's his influence uh, producing in us sanctification, uh, cultivating the fruits of the Spirit and such. Yes, ma'am. What about the, the scripture in Romans where it says um, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Yep, you, you're 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 tracking with me. Next next <laughs> next text box coming right up. It's you're, we'll we'll get to it in about two minutes. Okay, good question, good thought. Before we get there, let, let me just do this paragraph, and we'll then we'll get that question. Popular ideas that the Holy Spirit operated from a location outside believers during the Old Testament. Had a, had a professor at another school who argued that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was on the shoulder of of believers, <coughs> sort of whispering into his ear. But wasn't inside. He jumped inside uh, when we uh, uh, when we got saved in the New Testament. Others suggest that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's limited his manifestation to the temple, which was the dwelling place of God. The Shekinah was there, of course, the, uh, the, the glory cloud. And so in order for people to be right with God, advancing their sanctification, they had to come regularly, three times a year, to the temple. And perhaps part of the idea here is that you could get your I guess, thrice annual fix of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. I'm not sure that that's uh, quite exactly uh, what's going on. I, I always get this, uh, this this picture in my mind of the Verizon guy. Can you hear me now? Are we close enough to the Holy Spirit to get the, uh, the influence? That's not what was going on in the Old Testament, okay? The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the same as it is in the New. He influences, to a greater degree, those who are believers, and, and not those who are, are unbelievers. So here's the question here that was just asked. Um, there's actually a couple texts uh, that, that uh, speak to this. First uh, Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. I believe that should say 19 to 10. That doesn't make sense. So 19 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So you are not your own, because you have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so you look at that verse, and it does appear that there is something locative about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but let's look at the context, see if we can see if we can't pick up what's going on here. Of course, 
Uh, there apparently were some of Paul's readers in Corinth who were arguing, since salvation is a, is a spiritual thing, the habits of the body are irrelevant. It's incidental. Uh, they were probably uh, reflecting platonic kinds of thought, uh, the idea that the, the material was incidental, it, it was meaningless, and death meant the uh, escape from the prison house of the body and such. And so what happened in the body was really incidental, didn't really matter. Uh, so they're, they're perhaps what they might have said, I, I put a in quotation mark, my soul has been redeemed, but my body can't be redeemed, it's just going to die and rot in the earth, so I can do whatever I want with it until that time. Okay, and in the context, of course, you know, we're familiar with the church at Corinth, was engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality, and Paul is addressing this. Paul is saying that's not how it works. When you get saved, you're saved body, soul, and spirit. The whole of you is saved, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. Okay, so when regeneration occurs, he says, the Holy Spirit began to interact with you, all of you, and to transform you, all of you, at every level, including transformations both of the mind and the spirit, and also of the body. As such, the influence of the spirit should be evident not only in the way you think, but also in the way that you act, that is, uh, in your body. So he should be transforming all of you. So uh, the point here is not to say that the Holy Spirit was outside of our body and now is inside of our body, because theologically that just doesn't work for us, because the Holy Spirit is everywhere. We know that. And so the, the conclusion here is, is not that he was outside and now is inside, but rather the Holy Spirit has taken charge of you, body, soul, and spirit, and that should manifest itself in every aspect of life. The way you think, the way you believe, uh, the way you emote, and the way you use your body. And so all of those things uh, should fall in line uh, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell. Does that, I don't know, does that answer your question? Okay. Confuses me more. Confuses you more? Because <laughs> are you saying then that the Holy Spirit does not, the Holy Spirit does not dwell within us? Well, <laughs> I mean, the language. Okay, I recognize the language is yet the Holy Spirit does come and do something with us. Yeah. But what? But what I think we need to get away from is that the idea that the Holy Spirit was far away or absent, okay. and now He's here. Because the Holy Spirit is everywhere. Right. It's impossible for him to not be here. Well, right. I, I agree so. with you with the concept that the Holy Spirit is everywhere because God knows all and sees all. Mm-hmm. And so his spirit is everywhere. But when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh-huh. you re- you're receiving the Holy Spirit. Right. But what, what, what are you receiving? You're not receiving oh. a presence. Okay. All I know, well, all I know is that I have a strong relationship with them. Okay. 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 We have. Uh, I'm not. We're not arguing that you don't have a relationship with God. Right. But what changes is not the location of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Right, because He's everywhere. Right. 
So we have to. So that's what I'm saying. We have to define indwelling as something other than the Holy Spirit was on the other side of that wall, and now he's on this side of this wall. Right. <clears throat> he's everywhere. And so what indwelling is, then, is the Holy Spirit coming in and actually starting to interact with you, your your mind, your soul, uh, so that you respond in sanctification. Okay, so that's so that's what happens. Okay. Okay. So then, letter B, to sort of qualify that further, indwelling has to do with the Spirit's activity not his location. As we noted above, the effect of regeneration is union with Christ, participation in the divine nature, the birth and growth of the new man, the pneumaticos, the man with the spirit, as he's described in 1 Corinthians 2. Regeneration is not merely an animating impulse that just sort of causes us to come alive, that we are progressive and... um, uh, it is the impartation of a new self, complete with new thoughts, new inclinations, new affections, new behaviors that are progressively in step with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so so we, we start to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. So indwelling is not so much an additional work of the Holy Spirit per se, but rather it's the continuing effect of his regenerating work. He has regenerated us such that we are a new man, the spirit man, as described in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, so that uh, we have the fruit of the spirit, we walk in newness of life, not only as a maybe, but as a necessary thing. Okay? It's inevitable. We'll, we should advance in our holiness because we are new creatures in Christ. We are the spirit man. We are the new man. doesn't mean... That happens automatically, just automatically start to become more and more spiritual, but it is inevitable. Uh, same thing is true. Like, like, we can compare it to a child, right? A baby is born. Is it going to grow? It inevitably grows, but it doesn't grow automatically. You have to feed the baby, right? But it's, it's in its nature, as soon as it is born, to begin to grow. And so long as you feed it, uh, and something's not terribly wrong, that child will begin to grow. And the same thing is true of a believer in his spiritual life. Once we have been born spiritually, it is our nature to begin to grow. And we will inevitably grow. Um, uh, not automatically. We'll still keep still have to feed ourselves, you know, the, 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 the milk of the word and then the meat that follows. Uh, but it isn't an inevitable thing. It's not possible that we can simply starve ourselves to death. Okay? Next point here, yes. Could you uh, just explain a little bit? You got the word self in quotation marks. Yeah. What do you mean by self? What do you mean by the new self? <laughs> well, I, I I tried to describe it there as a a set of you know a set of a set of qualities. So mind, will, and affections is how I, I sort of. But you don't mean a new immaterial. No, you didn't mind. become a new. Yeah, you did. It's not as though you know Bill Combs is dead and and some you know some 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 alien where is persona. The, where is the trichotomy body, body, soul, spirit? That's what I was trying to get at. Oh, okay. People don't think that 
You're talking about you received an immaterial part you didn't have before. No, you didn't. You, no, it's 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 not as though you became something other than you were, except that you are now the spirit man. You're the man with the spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in your in your immaterial. So this must be some sort of transformation of your immaterial aspect, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's that's how I describe it: new mind, new will, new affection. So what you what you chose, what you liked, your your likes, your affections, your uh, your your choices are are rendered new. So you have now are capable of pleasing God, or before you weren't. All things are gone and everything is new. Right. Okay. Thirdly here, indwelling is universal among believers. It's not as though you could somehow miss this. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, Paul says in Romans, he does not belong to him. So anyone who belongs to Christ then has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. Jude 19 speaks in principle to two classes of persons, those who follow the mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit, and those who do have the Spirit and who follow after him. There's no in-between. You're either pursuing Christ uh, or you are not. And so every everyone who is a regenerate person has this continuing work of the Holy Spirit in effect within him. Okay. Yes, ma'am. When we were talking about the, um, over on page 35, you said, um, when a person comes to life spiritually, the old nature is not animated, so that is unable to perform spiritual functions. Instead, the spirit affects the new self. Yes. So that's a new set of attributes. Yes. But whatever was there with the sin nature, that's still there, right? Well... Yeah, that that comes into a rather uh, complex question here. What what makes up a nature? There's there's a big debate within uh, within theology whether whether the believer has two natures or one nature. I can live with the language. I'm not, I'm deliberately not looking at Bill here because he wrote an article on this. <laughs> Told me to ask this question. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, there is a sense in which you can speak about the believer as having only one nature, and and I tend to prefer that language myself because I don't want to give the idea that there's a you know there's a, a white dog, black dog, and they've sort of got equal power. You became a new person, and that is your predominant nature. Whatever is left is less than what was <laughs> what is, is less than what is here now. Okay? So you might call that a sin nature. The the uh, the uh, reformers and the Puritans used to talk about the, the remnants of sin or the dregs of sin uh, that in, that uh, still linger. I kind of like that language a little bit better because it gives the sense here that even though there is this impulse to sin that is still resident with us? It is actually weakening 
day by day, and and your spirit man is strengthening day by day. So that's why I've, I've tended to use one nature kind of language. You've got the new nature, the old nature is gone. Uh, but there's there's plenty of good arguments to say that you could call both uh, a nature, but I don't know if that helps. Okay. <clears throat> You can read Bill's article for the opposite view. Though. <laughs> 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 it's not the opposite view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have the we have the same concerns in view, but we we do craft it just a little bit differently. Okay, there are some objections, and some of them have already come up here. But let's let's talk about a couple more. Um, Acts five thirty two says that the Spirit is given to those who obey Him. And since some people are, some believers are disobedient, then indwelling might not come to that. Okay? My answer here is that to, to obey is regularly used by the writers of Scripture as a metaphor for faith. Um, not perfect behavior, but for faith. Probably what we have in view here is the obedience of faith. Those who have obeyed by submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ receive the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. It's not as though it's, it's, it's withheld from a certain class of disobedient believers. It comes to all believers, all those who obey uh, God by submitting to him in faith. Okay? Secondly here, the scriptures speak of the absence of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. Okay, John 7 speaks of the fact that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Actually, it's not even that language. It's the Holy Spirit was not yet, is, is, the, is the actual wording there. And we note that several New Testament believers did not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit until sometime after their conversion experience. Find on a couple of different occasions where uh, Paul or or another uh, or another apostle is, encounters someone who is unaware uh, that uh, that uh, of what had happened uh, at Pentecost. They were still, you know, uh, practicing the the baptism of John, not being aware that the the new baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ, had uh, had taken effect. And so, what happens while they're uh, they they receive baptism and immediately what they receive the Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Spirit is given. But probably what we have there is here is not the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is because in each case the Holy Spirit was observed by those standing about. So in the Book of Acts here, uh, to, as as an indication of the new way of the Spirit, the the new. Uh, the, the, the new organism that is being established here, the church, uh, we find that uh, that salvation was often accompanied by miracles. Miracles usually speaking in tongues, that is speaking in another language. And so there would have been a sudden outburst of speaking, that's what glossolalia, glossolalia is, uh, that is speaking in tongues. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on the other hand, cannot be immediately observed. Now, we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit in that people advance in, in holiness and in their sanctification. Uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't be able to say to, 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 to Mark here, receive the Holy Spirit and then see it immediately. Uh, it would take time uh, for me to see the effects 
of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. What happens in Acts here is something much more, much more dramatic and immediate. Probably in this, in each case here, uh, these individuals were speaking in tongues or are doing something uh, very similar in order to indicate uh, that uh, they, they've gotten it. Does that make sense? Does that follow? We're going to move into this whole question of, of tongues and continuing sign gifts here and just in, in, in the upcoming weeks, but that's sort of a, our, an, an initial foray here. Okay. Number two here, the question of the indwelling in the Old Testament is another thorny question. Um, although I don't know that it ought to be. But as with regeneration, I say, the concept of indwelling is not fully developed in the Old Testament. Um, We didn't have a a, a word for regeneration, for instance, in Hebrew. And the same thing is true here in this idea of the Holy Spirit being in people. That language is rarely used. We're going to see a couple of occasions where it is used, but it's rarely used. Uh, certainly not like we see it used in the New Testament. And for this reason, there are some who are dispensationalists, those who uh, see the church as distinct from Israel and differences between those two administrations of God's order. Some of these will deny that it, that indwelling was present in the Old Testament or permanent in the Old Testament. And this is this conclusion is furthered by a number of Passages. Firstly, the Old Testament passages in which the Holy Spirit would come and go. We'll talk about this, but for now we're just sort of laying it out here. But remember when uh, when Saul was was defrocked here, was his the kingdom was taken away from him. We find that the Holy Spirit departed from him, and in the immediately same context. David was anointed by Samuel, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Okay, And so it appears that the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit goes. And so the suggestion that is made by some is that indwelling was not permanent in the Old Testament. We'll talk about options in just a second. There are also New Testament references to a new internal work of the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 17, the Holy Spirit was with you and shall be in you, uh, which perhaps suggests that the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit is new for the New Testament age. But there's several problems uh, with that conclusion. I'd like to walk through these. Letter A here. Indwelling in the Old Testament is both exegetically demonstrable and theologically necessary. Okay, So first of all, we do find some texts... Only a few, but a few texts that speak of the Holy Spirit dwelling within believers. Numbers 27, verse 18. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, God says to Moses, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him. And so, uh, this is uh, this is the appointment here of Moses' successor, Joshua, and God gives instructions on how this was to be done. He was to look for this man, Joshua, who was known to be a man in whom was the Holy Spirit. Someone who was a man of faith. 
who manifested that faith in his life. And, and God said, Moses, go and, t- and lay your hand upon him, which would be then a, 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 a transfer of that leadership function uh, that Moses had uh, to Joshua. And this would have been illustrated then by, uh, by the anointing. In fact, that's what we find at the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of, of, of Joshua. We find that Joshua is anointed. Uh, so that the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily, uh, just as it had been upon Moses. Okay, and so the whole and but but so we're going to see a couple of works of the Holy Spirit. The holy the work of the Holy Spirit to lead the people that is transferred to Joshua because of this, you know this. Uh, this this the laying on of, of Moses' hand and the anointing with oil. But the reason Joshua was selected for that was because he already was a man in whom was the Holy Spirit. So we've got two works of the Holy Spirit in view here. And this is sort of our uh, sort of our opening foray into uh, the, this this rather difficult issue. Okay, so Joshua was a man in whom was the Holy Spirit. And he was, for that reason, selected to receive this additional manifestation of the Holy Spirit that would allow him then uh, to lead the people of Israel. Another example of someone who had the Holy Spirit in him was uh, was Joseph, of whom Pharaoh said, Can we find any man like this man, Joseph, one in whom is the Spirit of God? So here even an unbeliever is able to recognize that in Joseph was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that apparently evidenced itself in the behavior that Joseph had. Okay? The nature of regeneration number two, then, theologically demands indwelling in every dispensation. Regeneration, we described in both Testaments, is an inward work of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit imparts life. Indwelling is the continuing sustenance of that same life. So Ezekiel 26, the effect of God's bestowal of the new heart is the installment of my spirit within you. I will give him a new heart and put my spirit in him. Okay, They, they come together as a package. Romans 8, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, I recognize this is not an Old Testament text, but it, it, it's, it is sort of a timeless statement about the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You're either the spirit man, or you're the man in Adam. And that's what we find in 1 Corinthians 2 as well. The man without the spirit cannot accept a thing from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But the spiritual man, the man in whom the spirit is, makes correct judgments about all things because he has the mind of Christ. So, in order for someone to advance in holiness, to advance in his sanctification, to open the word of God and submit to it and accept it and welcome it and obey it, he has to have 
the resident Holy Spirit. Uh, one cannot be without the Holy Spirit and hope to advance in sanctification. So the collective import of these texts is clear. Without the Spirit's continuous sustenance of the new man, which is what it is because it is the Spirit man, the subject would cease belonging to Christ and would be rendered immediately incapable of sanctification. Revert to his prior state as an old man, the depraved being under the power of sin and in Adam. There's no alternative work of God whereby saints of other ages could have been so empowered. It's theologically impossible even to conceive of such a scenario. Okay? When you became regenerate, the old man died. Okay? The new man lives on, and this new man is the spirit man. So if, if impossibly, the Holy Spirit would leave, it, 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 it creates an impossible situation. You can't go back to the old man. The old man's dead. And so the only thing that's left is for you to remain the new man, the spirit man, the man in whom the Holy Spirit is, the pneumatikos, as he is, he is described there in 1 Corinthians 2. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay. So it's impossible in any, any dispensation to be without the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. I also say here, the process of sanctification uh, demands indwelling as well. In addition to the preceding, we note that the indwelling spirit is the source of all spiritual fruit. It's the fruit of the spirit. So if you want to advance in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on and so forth, uh, you have to have the Holy Spirit, the only means of apprehending biblical truth. 1 Corinthians 2 says, is by having the Holy Spirit. You have this anointing from the Holy Spirit so that you have and can can understand all truth. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, is the agent of prayer. You wouldn't be able to pray without the Holy Spirit. And the singular agent of sanctification. And the fact that Old Testament saints bore fruit, welcomed the scriptures, progressed in sanctification, demands that they must have been empowered by the by in these efforts by the Holy Spirit. The only other alternative is that they did this on, by their own unaided power, without any assistance from God himself. And I remember uh, doing, some, doing my doctoral work. Um, I, I was uh, writing a dis- my dissertation for a fellow who didn't believe there was indwelling in the Old Testament. So I asked him a question. So what does this mean, that the Old Testament saints were pretty much on their own to become holy? And I thought I was giving him a, a softball question, but his answer was, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and they're pretty much on their own. They had no help. They had to, they had to sort of gut it out themselves. And uh, that's the wrong answer. Okay. Hope you picked that up. Now, there are some objections here, and I uh, want to, to deal with two of them. Um, one... Uh, as was, uh, uh, some passages reflect that the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament was transitory, that it could come and go. Okay, so for instance, I have Judges 6, Samson, right? Uh, where Samson, the Holy Spirit would, the Spirit would come upon him with power and he would take a bone and kill a thousand people. 
Oh, and uh, and then of course we're all familiar with the story where Delilah cuts the hair, and what happens? The strength leaves him, and so so it would appear here that the Holy Spirit's coming and going, sometimes strengthening Samson to do superhuman things, other times departing so that he was just an ordinary man, or perhaps even less than an ordinary man. It's hard to. It's hard to say. So the Holy Spirit seems to come and go. We already talked about 1 Corinthians 6, 13, and 14, where the Holy Spirit comes upon David after he's anointed in secret uh, by Samuel. And the very next verse tells us, I mean, this is the this is the this is the uh, the omniscient narrator telling us that at the exact moment this happened, the Holy Spirit leaves Saul, and a Holy Spirit comes to oppress him. So much so that he actually attempts to commit murder, among other things. Okay, uh, and I want to throw in there Psalm fifty-one, eleven. Remember, this is this is David uh, praying after his sin with Bathsheba, and uh, it's a it's a very heartfelt prayer. It's a good prayer to read sometimes when you when you're in, in you know engaged in sin and you and you repent. It's a good psalm to read. But there's a verse in there that sort of sort of strikes you. What's he say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay? And apparently he thought this was a possibility. So what was he what was he worried about? What exactly what was his concern when he utters those words? Well, let me give two answers here. The second one, as you can see, is the larger one. Okay? Firstly, as was true in the first decades of the New Testament church, the incomplete nature of revelation in the Old Testament was such that the Holy Spirit would sometimes come upon people to do supernatural things. The Holy Spirit would come upon the prophets to prophesy or to perform some miracle of service or strength in the service of God's people. Uh, We find this is true of Moses. Uh, we find this is true of Bezalel, who's just an ordinary fellow, but was empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, to put together uh, some of the, uh, the, uh, the, the items of worship. Uh, Samson, of course, Elijah, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Elijah, and boy, does he do, do some pretty tremendous things in his life. And this work of the Holy Spirit in coming upon people should no more be confused with indwelling than its New Testament counterpart. In fact, this work of the Holy Spirit does not seem to even demand salvation of its objects in order uh, for this to occur. And I have uh, down here uh, Numbers 24. This is the story of Balaam. Uh, and uh, we, we, we find here that uh, uh, there is this probably Zoroastrian uh, prophet that is, that is, that is brought over across the river in order to curse the Israelites. And what does he say? I can't do it. Um, I, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so this is, this is, no, this is, this is a pagan. I mean, this is a pagan of the pagans. And yet when the Holy Spirit come up, come, comes upon him, he has to do say exactly what God tells him to say. I mean, we've even got a donkey in the story. Uh, who, who, the, the Holy Spirit apparently empowers him to speak at times. Um, and of course, this is not because he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit in some sort of a regenerated sense. Uh, this is, this is a special work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the same thing is true here in 1 Samuel 19. 
This would be after Saul loses whatever it, it was that he had. He loses the uh, the Holy Spirit uh, in his in his right to rule the people, and he's coming down full of venom, intent on killing David, and in what must have been one of the most comical things you can imagine, he comes upon a group of prophets that are prophesying, and he's just sort of drawn in among them, and starts prophesying with them, and forgets what he's there for, to kill David. Uh, so here's a, here's a person who is obviously not walking in obedience, uh, I would I would argue probably not even a believer, and yet the Holy Spirit overpowered him so that he was obliged to do something even against his will here, uh, because uh, God wanted it that way. Okay, so that's that's one answer to this question uh, that there is a work of the Holy Spirit that is unique to the biblical period uh, where God comes upon people to prophesy to do miracles. Uh, to do other uh, 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 supernatural works. But there's a second answer here that I think perhaps can give us a little bit more insight into what's going on here with the Holy Spirit coming and going. And I say here, there seems to be a work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, separate from indwelling, separate from the prophetic impulse, that is associated with the ruling of the Israelite nation. Some have called this the theocratic anointing, and I, I like the term. Because there were multiple God-appointed rulers in Israel during its history, it follows that this anointing would have to leave the one who is displaced and come upon the next ruler. And I think we can see this unfold in the history of Israel. See if we can't trace this uh, through uh, the uh, uh, through the. Uh, through the Old Testament. I say here, the theocratic anointing was a special ministry of the Spirit given to the head of the mediatorial, the theocratic kingdom. That is, God was the one who was ruling uh, Israel, but he did so through a human mediator. Okay? So that's why we call it the mediatorial kingdom. And this ministry of the Holy Spirit enabled him to function effectively in that capacity. So what the Holy Spirit did here, this endowment, consisted largely of administrative skills to carry out the affairs of the nation of Israel as the human vicar or, 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 or stand-in for God in the theocratic community. So the, the ruler, the king, uh, Moses, Joshua, would actually stand as God uh, to the Israelite people. Let's see if we can't trace this. It was first given to Moses, and we don't actually find it in the clearest of terms in the Old Testament, but we know from Acts 7 uh, that this happened. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer. And so we find that Moses was granted by God this authority, this right, this privilege to rule the Israelite people. As we work our way through uh, the, uh, the Pentateuch, we find that Moses becomes overwhelmed uh, by the responsibility that he has of leading 
some two million people, perhaps. And so he asks for help. And uh, God says, yes, it's good that you do not bear all of this responsibility alone. And so we find in Numbers eleven seventeen that I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, the ruler, the leader of the people, and will distribute it among the 70 elders, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to bear it all alone. Okay, and so this, this ministry of the Holy Spirit that enabled Moses to lead this unruly people uh, is now distributed among 70 other elders who are then able to assist him. They become uh, perhaps, uh, you know, they, they perhaps they organize the, uh, uh, the people under these 70 uh, vice rulers. And so Moses doesn't have to address all the problems by himself. He actually has quite a bit of help now. Okay. But the Holy Spirit has to be distributed to these people. We find then that this anointing was transferred to Joshua. We looked earlier at the fact that, uh, you know, take this man, Joshua, in whom the Holy Spirit is, and lay your hand upon him. So what happens there? Well, Deuteronomy 34 tells us, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom after Moses laid his hand on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so when Moses laid his hand upon Joshua, upon Joshua came this authority. And it was immediately recognized. And the people obeyed him just as they had obeyed Moses. And this is the promise made in Joshua 1.5. Uh, a lot of the little, the little folks in, in the, uh, the kids' programs, this is a a favorite verse of theirs, Joshua 1, 5, As I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And this is not simply a statement that you're going to receive the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, but rather you're going to have this special endowment of power that Moses had that enabled him to lead this people. Now Joshua has possession of it. We also find that this anointing then comes upon several of the judges. Um, I say presumably all the judges. We don't actually find the, the, the language of the Holy Spirit coming upon every single one of the judges. We have at least four of them where the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The Holy Spirit comes upon Othniel. He's able to uh, do some military exploits. Same thing with Gideon. Holy Spirit comes upon him and they're able to, uh, to to defeat the far larger army of the Midianites. Same thing happens with Jephthah and then also with Samson. Samson, perhaps the more most famous of these, where the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he just does some pretty fabulous things. Then we find that the anointing comes to Saul. So after the period of the judges, where the uh, where the, uh, the the Israelites were ruled variously, now we find this anointing coming upon the first king, Saul. First Samuel ten. Immediately upon being anointed, Saul was changed into another man. Okay, changed into another man. He prophesied. 
and was enabled to do whatever his hand found him for him to do because God was with him. Okay, and we find that this rather backwoods farmer figure is suddenly able to lead an army. Okay, and does so successfully at first, right? And so this is this is this is because the Holy Spirit comes upon him and changes him into another man. First Samuel eleven, the Spirit came upon God Saul mightily. When he heard these words, he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. And so the dread of the Lord came upon all the people, and they came out as one man. Okay, so uh, here's a... <laughs> he's given rather uh, some, some, some clever ruling uh, abilities here, and he's able to... <coughs> To muster up an army in in, in no time at all uh, with this uh, with this tactic he used. Now we should note here that Saul was not regenerated here at this time. In fact, he never seems to display any of the fruits of true repentance or obedience at any time during his life. The change that occurred here was not regeneration, but rather. He was changed from a backwoods farmer, fearful of responsibility, not wanting to lead, to a person capable of leading a nation. Okay? In fact, I, I, I think we should think in terms of what happens to, to Saul. Uh, of course, after he loses the, uh, the, uh, the spirit, he not only becomes incapable of leading, which is obvious, he also, he, uh, he just goes off the deep end. And uh, the, the end of Saul is just, is just quite awful, right? He consults a, a witch, and then he commits suicide. Um, and, uh, I mean, I recognize that uh, perseverance is not always, it, it, well, is not perfection. And we can't look at a person and always know whether that, I mean, we look at, Lot, and we would think, man, what a loser! Uh, can't be a believer, but then he shows up in the uh, Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews eleven. But uh, looking at how Saul ends, I, I have to I have to look at that and say, boy, he's this just doesn't look very good for Saul. And, and my inclination is to say that he was he really never was a believer. Nonetheless, the Holy Spirit came upon him and allowed him to rule the people in a very powerful way. Of course, we find in 1 Samuel 16 that the Spirit leaves Saul and comes on David. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, rather secretly. And the Spirit came mightily upon David from that day forward. But, very next verse, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Okay. Then Psalm fifty one eleven. Now we now we have a context for Psalm fifty one eleven. David commits really an egregious sin, right? He he uh, he commits adultery with a woman, and then in an attempt to cover up for what he does, and what he's done, he tries to he, he actually successfully kills her husband. I mean, it's it's an ugly thing. I mean, the story is just filled with twists and turns of the most most egregious sort, okay? 
And, of course, Nathan comes and confronts him, says, you're the man. And David, as he typically did, being a man after God's own heart, does repent immediately. Okay. However, he is concerned, after he repents, and he does so immediately, that there may be consequences of a, of a significant nature. Of course, we know there were some. The child dies. Um, but uh, but he, he, he offers up this prayer, uh, largely a prayer of repentance and, and anguish of soul. And one of the statements he makes here in Psalm 51 is, don't, take, don't cast me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And what we have here is not David asking God to keep him saved. Okay? Uh, just as in every age, once you're a believer, you're a believer. Once you're saved, you're always saved. So what was David <coughs> requesting? Well, he's asking that this anointing for service as king might not be removed from him as it had been removed from Saul. When Saul lost his anointing, he did not lose his salvation, but rather his fitness to rule. So when physical anointing occurred, apparently, it reflected an actual anointing by God. Okay, so this anointing with oil, you say it, it obviously is some, some, some sort of a symbolic thing, but what was it symbolic of? It was symbolic of, you know, we, we think of the, of, the, of the anointing with oil as the real thing, but rather it's the symbol of something that was going on, you know, invisibly. Uh, God the Holy Spirit was coming upon that ruler uh, to to rule. Which is why then Israel's kings are described as God's anointed. Okay. And remember, remember where uh, where David is in the in the cave with Saul and he's and uh, he has this opportunity to kill him, you know, Saul's chasing him around trying to destroy him. David has this opportunity to kill him, and what does he do? He you know, cuts off the corner of his garment and steals a couple of items that he had. And then he's overcome by guilt. Why? Because he's touched the Lord's anointed. And he knows that there's serious consequences with that. You dare not touch the Lord's anointed because the Lord's anointed apparently did have sovereign protection attached to him. Of course, we see that particularly you know, with Jehoshaphat when he's protected from this, this hail of arrows that all missed him in battle uh, because apparently the Holy Spirit uh, was such that he would give him some protection. And this was true of all the Davidic kings and uh, perhaps uh, gives us a sense of, of what's going on in this. So he was very concerned about touching the Lord's anointing. Don't don't Again, don't confuse this don't touch the Lord's anointing with something that can happen today. I know sometimes there there have been pastors uh, who you know either living in sin or, or trying to trying to you know bull their way uh, to a to a, a place of authority in the church and say touch not the Lord's anointed. They're misusing the verse. Okay, that that's not a reference to pastors in the present day, but rather to the kings of Israel, who have, in fact were the Lord's anointed, not only, be, the, 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 not only because they were anointed with oil, but because they had been endowed by the Holy Spirit uh, with authority. Yes, ma'am? Uh, doesn't David say, do not take from me the joy of my salvation? 
Right. It's, it, not, he's not saying take away my salvation. Take away the joy. Sure. Yeah. So he knew he was saved. Yes. Okay. I believe so. Yeah. And, and and theologically, we know that once someone is saved, they're always saved. So it, it seems, unless he was very confused, and theologically misinformed, that really wouldn't be a request that he would make. Don't don't take away my salvation. Okay. So we find after it after it comes to David, the anointing comes upon Solomon. <clears throat> and though it's not directly connected with his anointing in First Corinthians in First Kings one, Solomon's extraordinary wisdom to rule was not something that was innate, right? You know, God comes to him and says, I'll give you anything. What do you want? And what does Solomon ask for? Well, in his in his in the in the wisdom of his youth, he says, I want wisdom. Of course, this answer pleased God, and so God gave it to him, made him the wisest man of all time, right? And so this uh, this uh, this ability to uh, to rule, and of course we, we, we find excerpts of what he does uh, in order to wisely adjudicate between you know the two moms, you know, trying to decide who's the, who the baby belongs to, and he says split it in two, and the and the real mom says let her have it. I don't I don't want the, I don't want the baby to die, and the uh, and the the, the non mom says yeah let's do it split it in half, and well that was kind of obvious who mom is at this point. Uh, and so, so Solomon has this great wisdom that is given to him uh, by God, and by the Holy Spirit, that it was not native to him, apparently, uh, so that he could rule with a wisdom beyond uh, what is his natural aim. Okay? And so we find then that there are a number, there are these, these psalms, uh, Psalm 2, for instance, uh, especially, uh, we find their, their coronation psalms that speak to the anointing uh, that would have been recited, read uh, at the uh, at the installment of every one of the Judahite kings. And so we have reason to think uh, then that the Holy Spirit comes upon all of the kings of Judah, just as they had come upon Saul and David and Solomon. And we find. And we find illustrations of that at, at points along the way. Not not every one do we see this, this manifestation of the Spirit. But, but in many cases, we do. And so this anointing apparently comes upon all of the kings of Judah up until Jehoiakim, the last of the Davidic kings, uh, was removed to Babylon. And this is illustrated, perhaps, in the departure of the glory cloud, right? You know, the... That, that horrible scene in the book of Ezekiel, where the, the priests have their backs turned to the to the uh, temple, and the Shekinah lifts its way out of the uh, out of the temple, lingers there on the on the hillside, and then disappears, and nobody seems to even notice it. If it wasn't for the the narrator telling us this, everybody's everybody's attention is somewhere else, and at that point, the Holy Spirit departs, not in an absolute sense, right. Holy Spirit is omnipresent, but in this sense of of, of shepherding His people uh, from from the uh, from the temple is now gone, and the Holy Spirit then departs also. 
uh, from the last of the Judahite kings. And so we are left hanging with the Holy Spirit's ministry, this theocratic anointing, uh, suspended. Okay? But not interminably. Because this anointing comes to Jesus Christ at his baptism. After he was baptized, Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descended as a dove and settled upon him. Okay? It's obviously not the first contact that Jesus had with the Holy Spirit. Certainly we don't want to call this his indwelling, okay? As though, the, as, as though Jesus was not indwelt prior to this time for his salvation. God had, uh, Jesus had no need of salvation. So what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, this full measure of the Holy Spirit, to now enable his public ministry. And from that point forward, uh, he goes about, uh, does amazing things, as we're well aware. Isaiah 11.2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then uh, similarly in Isaiah 42, uh, verse 1, which Jesus quotes in the temple, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. Oops, a page. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. And then of course this time that Jesus is reading in the temple, and he reads from Isaiah and clearly uh applies these to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to send, and has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and recovery of sight, sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closes the book and everybody's like staring at him because they know what he's doing. He's claiming to be this messianic figure, uh, this one upon whom is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has anointed him to do all these spectacular things because he was the Messiah. He was the true Davidic king, and he's coming to claim his crown rights. And people and everybody knew exactly what he was saying. Acts 10, after the fact, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power so that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Okay, And so we understand then that just as David received the anointing in secret, on, on you know, right out, outside the pasture there, and doesn't actually function as king for another decade or more, so also the same thing happens with Christ. So the, the anointing comes upon him. His, his right to rule is granted to him. And so he goes out and performs these messianic exploits. But he doesn't actually assume a throne at this point. Okay, now This is something that is, that is delayed until uh, after he sits for some time at his father's right hand. And then, and then afterwards, uh, he receives uh, not not just the right to rule, but he actually receives his kingdom. And so we look forward to that. So, so if I if I can bring it all back to the, the question we were asking, why is it that the Holy Spirit seems to come and go in the Old Testament, 
And the answer is not because indwelling was impermanent, but rather because there's an additional work of the Holy Spirit unique to the rulers of Israel uh, that we really don't expect to see today because this authority is now belongs to our real Christ. Okay? Does that follow? I know that was sort of a long answer to, to a short question. Thoughts? Questions? We still have one little question here to go on uh, on indwelling, but it's a it's a thorny one, so I'll just leave it till next week because our our time's exhausted. But uh, uh, we'll we'll pick this up and then uh, plug away next week. Any, uh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, I wanted to just uh, ask: with the northern and the southern kingdom, yes. only only the Holy Spirit is given the rule through Judah. Right. What would we have any idea what? the spirit was doing with the northern kingdom uh, nothing nothing special right uh, because because the, the promise is, is connected with the D- Davidic covenant okay so uh, because you know that's the promise that's made there in second second Samuel 7 where I will be with you and with your descendants and there will be one of your descendants sitting on the throne into the age. So the promise is to David and his descendants. So there's really no promise for anyone outside of that line. So I would say the Holy Spirit's not doing anything special with the Lord. He, he, would, he would not have been assisting them in any special sense. They would have just been like the kings of the nations. Good thought, though. Good question. Okay. See you next week. <laughs>